0: The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Psalms, The Anatomy of the Soul. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com.
1: Hear the Word of the Lord from the book of Psalms, chapter 40 and Psalms 100. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock Yet there are more that can be told. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. There are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether, who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor, who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame, who say to me, Aha, aha, But may all who seek your rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. As for me, I am born needy. But the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. Psalm 100. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us, and we are His. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him. Bless His name. For the Lord is good, and His steadfast love endures forever, and His faithfulness to all generations. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Psalm 100 that was just read for us this morning, the second Psalm, is a beautiful hymn. If you've been around here long, you've probably heard it. We use it for call to worship. It really gives us in that little Psalm, the heartbeat of the Christian life, the heartbeat of the life of the person who's been changed by God. What does he say? He says this, make a joyful noise, joyful, serve the Lord with gladness, know that the Lord is God. He made us and we are His. It says, enter into His gates with thanksgiving. It means come into His house thanking Him for what He's done. And enter His courts with praise. So when you enter into the gathering of God's people, come in praising Him for what He's done. Give thanks to Him. Bless His name for the Lord is good. His hased or steadfast love endures forever. Now this shows us the wellspring of the Christian life is gladness, joy and delight that overflows into worship. I'm so thankful that God wants us to enjoy him and enjoy our lives lived serving him. We are to make a joyful noise and sing to him out of the overflow of our hearts. We are to serve him with gladness. Now, I love that, especially after that that kind of first sermon I just preached, right, up here today. We're to serve him with gladness. That means when we lay down our rights and we we love our neighbors by giving of our resources, we're to do it with gladness. See, these are proof, or this is proof, that God is not after slaves. He doesn't desire us to just grin and bear it. He doesn't want us to keep our mouths shut and just do what we are told. He isn't a cosmic policeman hitting the streets to catch lawbreakers. No, no. God is after our gladness. He wants us. He even commands us to be happy and enjoy him. This means that Christians should be the happiest people on the planet. They should have more joy and more gladness in their life than anyone else. We preached a whole sermon series a couple months back on this. You can go back in the podcast and find it if you want. But, Unfortunately, this doctrine has been neglected. Preachers have failed to preach it and believers have failed to search it out in the scriptures and therefore our sanctuaries are full of people and our youth groups are filled with teenagers and our kids' ministries are filled with kids who think that God is a cosmic killjoy. But many people have kind of went to the other extreme as well. See, some people live by the mantra that God just wants you to be happy. And by that, they mean he doesn't care how you live your life. Just do what you want to do. Do what's easiest for you. Whatever makes you the most comfortable and brings about the most pleasure, immediate pleasure in your life. Do that thing and God will be completely fine with it because he just wants you to be happy. I mean, how could God ever say no to you if he wants you to be happy? Because we all know nobody likes no, right? Now this comes out in many different ways. This is the not yet married couple who looks at me and tells them they've prayed about it and God says that they're married in their heart and it's okay for them to have sex before marriage or to live together. And I'm supposed to shake my head and go, hmm. God violates his word, huh? Well, he just wants you to be happy. I'll just, won't say anything about it. Or maybe the church attenders, who don't want to lay aside their own comforts. They don't want to be generous givers. They don't want to sacrifice of their time or their talents or their treasure to further God's mission. They, they kind of want to come and hear a little bit about the gospel, hear a little bit about how to get to heaven when they die, but they don't really want their lives to be changed. I, I don't want to be like intense. I don't want people to like actually think I'm a Christian. I don't want to be any different from my neighbors. I want my schedule to look like theirs. I want my free time to look like theirs. I want my fences to be as tall as theirs. I don't really want to invite people into my life. Just, I want, is there like a B team Christianity? That's what I want. I get to be at the games and watch from the sidelines, but I'm actually not going to take, get hit or anything. I get to go, woo, this is awesome when we win, but I don't have any bruises to show for it the next day. And there's even churches that avoid, that they have their whole kind of philosophy of ministry based around avoid saying, avoiding saying anything that could be offensive, anything that could be sad, anything that could be kind of deemed as depressing or convicting or challenging. Listen, if I'm going to say this. If you don't, and maybe you'll understand why we preach the way we do it right here. If you don't have to repent after listening to a sermon or after listening to a message, it isn't a sermon. It might be a nice talk, It might be a lecture. It might be a message, but it's not a gospel sermon. A gospel sermon should be responded to in two ways. Faith and repentance. Every single one of them. Unless you're Jesus. (laughs) Because every time I get up and say, thus says the Lord, we should feel, I can't do that. That's too much for me. I fail. And so we need a savior. Every gospel sermon should be met with faith and repentance from a Christian and from an, un, from an unbeliever as well. These are, but all of these ways of trying to avoid difficult things, wanting to do what I want to do. These are all ways that we try to manufacture our own gladness. That's what we're talking about today. Gladness, the emotion of gladness. Don't tell people hard things. Don't try to do hard things. If you do hard things, you might fail and then you'll feel bad. Do what keeps you comfortable and you will be happy. Well, you might be saying, actually, that sounds like a pretty good idea. What's wrong with that? Well, let me use an analogy. Think about the accomplishments of your life, the greatest accomplishments of your life. What are they? Have you ran a marathon, climbed a mountain, deadlifted 500 pounds, gave birth to a baby? Loved the same spouse for 25 plus years? Have you made it through grad school? Launched a missional community? Built a business? Learned an instrument? Raised kids that love God? What are your greatest accomplishments? Think about them. All of those accomplishments, and there's a bajillion more, right? All of those accomplishments are all incredibly difficult. None of them can be accomplished without a lot of blood, sweat, and tears. But here's the thing. On the other side of all of that pain is a pleasure that cannot be found any other way. Right? Isn't that ironic? The greatest pleasures in life, the greatest gladness in life comes through our greatest pains. The person who is unwilling to put down the little Debbies and put on their running shoes and put in the time on the road will never experience the pleasure that is found in finishing the race. It just won't happen. The pain, I don't know this by experience. I know this secondhand experience. The pain of childbirth makes the joy of that first glimpse so much more sweet. And so today we're gonna talk about gladness which is easy to define. It's the emotion of being joyful, merry, happy, or blessed. And surprisingly, throughout the Psalms, this is the term that the psalmist uses to describe the righteous. I'm just gonna say in our language, the Christian. This is the language of the Christian. He's the blessed. He's the happy. He's the joyful. He's the merry. He's the glad one. And it's always in reference to the person, here it is, and you're going to hear this several times today, who is dependent upon God. Now, Christians in Psalm 100 are commanded to be glad people. That's, I, that's one of our rules. That's a good rule right? There's a lot of rules that are like, oh, that one kind of hurts a little bit. But when he says, be happy, that's a good rule. We should rejoice in that rule. We should be thankful for that rule. But that rule should also lead us to ask a few questions. If God commands us to be happy, he commands us to be glad. How can I serve the Lord with gladness if I don't feel happy? how can you serve the Lord with gladness if your life isn't going the way that you think it should go? How am I supposed to be glad about my sufferings and my loss or my difficult marriage or our broken world? How can I be glad that, that, doesn't that just seem kind of cheesy, like a person who's not real with, you know, he's living in a la-la land, and he, you show up and he's always got this weird smile on his face and he just floats above the grass and, right, like, seems ingenuine, does it not? Like, who is this weird person? Well, thankfully, if you're asking those questions, how can I be glad with all this brokenness, there's a psalm for that. And there's literally a psalm for every emotion and every kind of doubt that we have And that's one of the gifts of the book of Psalms. And today we're going to look at Psalm 40. If you want to turn your Bibles there. And Psalm 40 shows us how King David, listen to this, shows us how King David used his grief, his pain, his limitations of being a human, his sinfulness. He used these things to push through into gladness. It's my prayer that it would help us do the same. Now, here's the secret to this whole series that we've been preaching. All of our human emotions are meant to lead us to this one. All the other emotions, okay, we've talked about sadness, we've talked about loneliness, we've talked about hurt, we've talked about guilt, anger, and shame, and they're all meant to terminate in gladness. All the other emotions, think of it like this. All the other emotions, every emotion that you possibly could feel is an airplane leaving from somewhere else, right? But they're all meant to land at one terminal. And that's the terminal of gladness. Anger is meant to lead you to gladness. Grief is meant to lead you to gladness. Pain, loss, hurt meant to lead you in gladness. Gladness. Loneliness is meant to lead into gladness. Now let me ask you, Do you know how to ride the emotion of shame into gladness? Do you know how to let your anger take you into the airport of gladness in this example? Do you know how to navigate your sadness and loss until you arrive safely at gladness? Well, thankfully, David is a master pilot, and he's going to show us in Psalm 40 how to navigate these emotions so that they all terminate in gladness. I think this is really important for us to understand because, listen, gladness is not goofy. The Christian life, the joy-filled life is not silly. It's not a perpetual Adam Sandler movie. No, the joy-filled life is a constant cycle between gravity and gladness. We're always somewhere in between this spectrum of gravity and gladness. And we need to learn how to navigate our emotions so that we end up in gladness. That's the point of all of these emotions. If you think about this right now, you are somewhere between birth and death. Am I right? All of us. And guess what? The life of a pastor, the life of a missional community, the life of a human, the life of a Christian, we're all navigating right now somewhere between birth and death. We go from weddings to funerals. We go from joy to sorrow. We go from wins to losses. There's no one who who escapes this life unscathed. Guess what? The mortality rate for us is still 100%. Actually, there's two people who did not die. So maybe that's 99.9 to very far away in the scriptures, right? We need to know how to navigate all of these emotions, all of these suffering, all of these griefs. We need to learn how to navigate these rough waters. And David's going to show us how to do that. So I want you to open up to Psalm 40. We're going to go verse by verse through this and make our way through it. To the choirmaster, a Psalm of David. This is how David begins. I waited patiently for the Lord. Now it's interesting. The Hebrew there is actually just the double. It's like, I waited and waited. I waited. We see here we, if we put I mean patiently's right, but we put that on there and we think, oh, that's so nice. David's so patient. Now, see, he's saying, I waited and I waited. Now I'm gonna say this is in the in the cycle of between gravity and gladness, this is one of the most difficult seasons. It's almost different. I'm waiting on you. I'm waiting and waiting and waiting. And that's what David's trying to get across. He's waiting and waiting and waiting for the Lord. Have you ever been in this spot? You know how dark it can be, how depressing it can be. Does God hear me? Does God care? What's going on? And that's exactly what's happening right here. Look, but David says, and now listen, David is looking back on a difficult circumstance. We don't know what it is, it could, he's got enough. In his biography, uh, we could pick and choose. It could be lo- he's losing battles, or he lost a battle. It could be when he lost his son. It could be when he uh, had an affair. It could be all kinds of things. But he's looking back on this past experience of his life, and he's saying, oh, I remember that. And I waited, and I waited, and I waited for the Lord. It was tough. But then what he, look what he says. But he inclined to me, and he heard my prayer. David remembers being in this terrible spot, but God leans in and listens to David. And look, he drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and a miry bog. Most of us don't know what a miry bog is, right? I don't even know if we have bogs in the Quad Cities, right? A miry bog, it's like, a. think about it like this. A lot of commentators said it's like this. It's like a well and at the bottom is no longer water but it's now almost like quicksand and he's sinking in this ball and he's looking up and there's no way out and he's all alone and he's in a dark place and he feels like he's sinking. He feels like his life is about to end and he doesn't think that he can keep crawling his way out. He can keep his head afloat. He's going under and he doesn't know what to do. This is David. This is his experience in life. He's in a very dark place. This is much like Paul's thorn in the flesh that we're told in the New Testament. We don't know what it is, but we know how it feels. It's painful. It feels like David, or David here, feels like he's been thrown into a well with quicksand at the bottom. He doesn't know how much longer he can hold out. David cries out to God in prayer for help. And here it is. The first part is the waiting. He's waiting for this rescue. And he cries out and then God rescues him. Second part, we have the rescue. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry box, and he set my feet upon a rock. Can you imagine this feeling of being pulled up, right? You think you're about to die, and all of a sudden God pulls you up and he sets you in an open place, and there's this feeling of relief, and you're like, thank God, that really was bad, that really was awful, but God is so good that he listened to me and he pulled me up and he set me up on this safe place, and think about that. In this moment, if David had never been in the trouble, if David had never been in the miry bog, if he'd never been in the dark place, he never would have experienced the freedom of the rescue. He never would experience experienced the gladness that comes from the rescue. So we have the, re- the, the waiting, and then here we have the rescue, and now three, we have the worship. After being rescued, what does David do? Verse three, he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God, and then look, many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. See, God's not like an egomaniac. Some of us get really worried when we read that profession of faith that we have, that God is glorious and he's all about his own glory and he just delights in his own glory. He thinks that, that we think sometimes that's like a human being who just wants to be told how good looking they all, all, are all the time. God's not like that. He's not an egomaniac. He's the most glorious being in all of existence. So he deserves all the praise. He deserves all the glory, but he's not out for it. He's not hard up for it. Like he doesn't need it. He doesn't need, what are humans that God is mindful of him? He doesn't need anything from us. But listen, you know who needs the worship? We do. We need to be reminded there's somebody above us. We need to be reminded there's somebody great and glorious and and gracious above us and that all of our limitations can be met in him. And you know what else? The world needs to know it. The world needs to know that politics aren't the answer. The next president isn't the answer. The United States of America is not the answer. We will not usher in the kingdom of God through our democratic process. The king is coming and he's above us. We need to know this. And so there's a missional aspect for our worship. David worships by singing this new song and this psalm, he writes this psalm here. And it says, many will see and hear There's a missional aspect to it. And then he says this. And that trust, many will see in fear and put their trust in the Lord. That trust means confidence, security, reliance. They will no longer rely on themselves. They will now rely on the Father. And then David, out of this doxology here, out of this worship, he says, blessed, happy, glad, is the man and woman who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. And I look at blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. Hear me. This is him saying, blessed is the man who's dependent upon God. Like I I keep leaning on this to show you like, this is me being dependent upon this podium. I'm leaning on it. If it moves, I fall. He's saying blessed in the man who leans on God so much that if God fails, he'll fall. Of course, God never fails. Doesn't say, and then he contrasts that with the proud. What is the proud? The proud says, I can do it on my own. The proud says, I'm an American. I can make it on my own. The proud says, let me add it. I can tackle it. I can accomplish it. The blessed says, if God fails, I fail. I put my trust in the Lord. Verse five, you have multiplied, oh Lord, my God. And he's just going, he just can't believe that God has thought about him and saved him. You've multiplied, oh Lord, my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them. Yes, there are more than can be told. He's just worshiping here. This is why we sing, to tell of the, the works that the Lord has done. And these next verses are rather shocking. In the context that they're written, the Old Testament here, in the midst of what we know as the sacrificial system, where when they sinned, they were given laws that if they broke those laws, that's sinning, and they had to sacrifice in order to be made right with God. But David somehow, prophetically, supernaturally, sees through the the, the sacrificial system and he sees behind it to to the future fulfillment where we are deemed righteous not by our sacrifice, but we're deemed righteous through sacrifice by our faith or our trust in Jesus Christ. Now look what he says here. In sacrifice and offering, you've not delighted. So they're killing animals left and right. They're paying blood sacrifices for their sin to cover the guilt. And he's like, that doesn't make you happy. But you've given me an open ear. He's blown away that God is listening to him. Burnt offering and sin offering, you've not required. There's something deeper he's after. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Now listen, what's he saying? You don't want me just to obey the rules. You want my heart. You want my love. You want my delight. You want my gladness. You want me to be joyful and happy about it. David is seeing through. David had a genuine relationship with God. And he sees through the sacrificial system. He says, I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips as you know, Lord. He's just saying, hey, I told it. You rescued me. I let everybody know. I have a hidden deliverance within my heart. I've spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I've not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. And he says, Of the Lord, as for you, O Lord, you will not restrain, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your has said your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. Now here we go. Listen. We had the waiting, we had the rescue. We had the worship, and now we have, listen, wouldn't it be nice just to end right there? Let me just stop. Wow, there it is. That's it, Justin. Every every pain terminates into gladness. So our life should just be this upward trajectory, always up and to the right. Growing up into gladness, things just get better and better and better. I was in a miry pit, but thank God I'm set up on a high place now. Whew, good to go. That's what I need to know. Except here in this beautiful psalm, we go from waiting to the rescue, to the worship, to the relapse. Look at verse 12. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me. My sins have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. What is David saying? I'm not sure how, but I'm back in the miry pit. I'm back in the bottom of the well. My heart fails me. My emotions are out of control. I feel lost. I feel abandoned. I feel broken. I see my sins. They are many, they're in front of me. My thoughts, my lusts, my desires, they're so in front of me. Evils are around me. We don't know what's going on. This could literally be enemies attacking him. This could be his family going crazy. We don't know what's going on. All we know is how he feels and he feels lost again. He feels broken again. He feels in a dark place again. So many people think they come to Christ and their life is this upward trajectory. And then when the first Myrie Bog hits. The first dark night of the soul hits. They don't know what's going on. They immediately assume God has abandoned them. God has left them. What's wrong with me? Am I not reading my Bible enough? Am I not praying enough? Am I not giving enough? Am I not going to church enough? This is the cycle. Gravity to gladness. To gravity to gladness. To gravity to gladness. but watch here. Now listen, I'm not saying this is, sometimes we can go from gravity to gladness to gravity and give up and walk away from God. This isn't what I thought it was. How could this happen to me? How could I get cancer? How could I get sick? How could my business fail? How could my marriage fail? This is what I, I came to you for a better life. That's not what I'm getting, so I'm out of here. And if you do that, I don't think you were ever saved. I don't think you ever knew God. You came to him for a better life, not for him himself. But David shows us what gravity is supposed to do. Gravity is supposed to lead us back into gladness. And David, watch how he works his gravity so that it brings about a new sense of gladness. We've had the waiting. We had the rescue. We had the worship. We had the relapse. Now we have the requests. Verse 13 through 16. In the midst of his darkness, what does he say? Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. He's crying out for help again. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, aha, aha. Sounds like he's got some Job's accusers, some Job's friends along that are going, look, his life has fallen apart because of his sins, because he's abandoned God, because he doesn't trust in Jesus. Look at his life, <laughs> he, he should be ashamed. And David says, let it fall back on them. Those who say, aha, aha. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. In his darkness, he's saying, God, may those who seek you rejoice, take joy, be joyful and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, great is the Lord. David here is walking his soul through the pain and has now laid hold of God's promise. He's on the path from gr- gravity that leads to gladness. He's almost kind of back in step one, the waiting. He's, trouble, he's in trouble again and crying out to God and waiting. Can I just say, verse 16, may those who seek you that means there's stuff we need to do. Can I just say that? There's a pursuit that needs to happen there's a desire that needs to be in our heart that we need to follow and go after God. And in a dark time, especially you don't push away from God and ignore him and get angry at and get mad at him, but rather you run to him and you press in and you cry out and you say, God, what's going on? I don't understand it. Why is this happening? Where are you? What have you done? What are you doing? And you pursue him. And David says, I know that in that pursuit, there's a joy and there's a gladness to be found even in the midst of my problems, in the midst of my struggles. And he says rejoice and be glad look at this in you in you there's a place to go in god that's not circumstantial that you can have joy and gladness in the midst of your problems but how do you find that how do you find that our my last kind of point we had the waiting we had the worship, right? Or the, we had the waiting, we had the rescue, we had the worship. You see all these? I like these. I, I. You have uh, the request, the relapse, you have the request. And now we have the weakness. Look at verse 17. As for me, I am poor and needy. But the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay. Oh my God. David finds gladness in an awareness of his weakness and vulnerability. And in the midst of his weakness and vulnerability, God's presence, God's nearness to him and his love for him Now listen, hear this. True gladness comes through an awareness of a person's limitations and the real experience of having God meet those needs and be present and available to us in them. In the scriptures, spiritual maturity is found in a greater and greater dependence upon God not independence from him. We think, see, as you grow in physical maturity, you have a greater and greater independence, right? You don't need your parents anymore. Some of us need that lesson, right? You actually move out of the basement, right? They stop buying your groceries, right? They don't pay your car insurance anymore. You have this greater and greater independence. You're becoming your own man, right? You're becoming your own woman. That's not so in the the life of faith, Spiritual maturity becomes, grows by us becoming more and more dependent upon God, not independent from him. We wrongly assume that the more we mature, the less we'll need him. Like some of us get shocked that we're still repenting of sin. I've been a Christian for six years. I should be sinless by now. Like when I came to faith, I came to faith kind of under the gospel, under kind of a false gospel preaching. And I thought that, God, please forgive me. I actually said that in a few years. I don't think I'll sin anymore. Like I used to cuss. I don't cuss anymore. That was super easy. I should be able to conquer all my sins like that. Little did I know the dark recesses of my heart and the pride that lurks there and the greed that lurks there, right? Right. The selfishness that lurks there. See, David here says, blessed is the man who puts the, makes the Lord his trust. Right? He leans on the Lord. He's dependent upon the Lord. Listen to what theologian A.W. A. Pink says. Let me quote this. Testings, that's this dark knot of the soul. When When the stuff hits the fan, when our life goes off the rails, when things happen that we don't like, testings... Reveal the state of our heart, of our hearts. A crisis neither makes nor mars a man, but it does manifest him. While all is smooth sailing, we appear to be getting along nicely, but are we? Are our minds stayed upon the Lord, or are we instead complacently resting in his temporal mercies? That means things are just going well, and so it's going well for me. When the storm breaks, it is not so much that we fail under it, listen, as that our habitual lack of leaning upon God, of daily walking independence upon him is made evident. Now, Pink is is saying, when we fail under trial, when we fail under temptation, when we run from God or push away from God, when things get difficult, it's revealing that in our life, in our daily walk with the Lord, we're not leaning on him. We're trusting in our own efforts. We're trusting in our own ability and our own strength and our own power. Now I think, now I want you to kind of think about those examples that I used earlier, right? The reason the joy of finishing the marathon is so great is because we are all aware of our own weaknesses, right? We know when I run, I get tired. My knees hurt. My back hurts, right? And we think in our mind, I don't really know if I could do that. 26 miles? I don't, first off, I don't know why people do this at all. We have cars, right? But whatever. So I think, I wonder if I could, I I just wonder if I have what it takes to do that. And the joy we feel at the end is because we have tested ourselves and we found that in our weakness, we were strong. We actually did it. I'm one of those people. I can put the 26.2 sticker on the back of my car. Everybody knows he's a bad mama jamma. He can run 26 miles, right? We do that. This is why we do these things, Right. Can I do it? I have this doubt. I accomplish it. I feel this joy. Look what I can do. But David here is tapping into a gladness that is so much deeper than that. This gladness isn't based upon his own achievements or power. He says, as for me, I am poor and needy but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and deliverer. He doesn't reach down into the depths of his soul and say, I am more than a conqueror. I can handle this. He looks himself in the mirror, right? You're good enough. You're smart enough. Gosh, darn it. People like you. He doesn't click on YouTube and watch a promotional video or watch a motivational speaker and say, you can do it. Wake up earlier, work harder. Here's some new tips and tricks. He says, I am poor and needy, but you are my deliverer. This church is the key to true gladness. True gladness comes through an awareness of a person's limitations and the real experience of having God meet those needs and be present and available to us in them. But I think this is why so many of us don't experience true gladness. The more people I meet with, and the more of my own heart I search, I realize that we don't know how to be glad in the midst of our weaknesses. We think our weaknesses are bad. To be created is to have limitations. Listen, all failure isn't a result of the fall, right? If Adam tried to run as fast as the cheetah in the garden, he would have lost. He wasn't created to run that fast, nor was he created to fly or swim underwater for hours on end like the whale or whatever. He has limitations. He would have failed at those things. We're created. We have limitations. All of our limitations and weaknesses are not a result of sin. These limitations and vulnerabilities, hear me, they're the door into gladness. So many of us hate our weaknesses. We hate that we have to sleep. You know how much I could get done if I didn't have to sleep? Listen, if you said that before, you're a psycho like me, okay? Because you think your identity is found in what you produce. I love it. And God's like, I'm going to make you sleep half your life. What a waste of time. <laughs> it's going to remind you two things. One, it's going to remind you there's going to come a day that you're going to sleep forever in the grave, your body, right? Secondly, it's going to remind you, you have limitations and you're not me. You know who doesn't sleep? God. Every night should be a reminder of the gospel. I have been created. I am not self-sufficient. I need sleep. I am dependent upon my sleep. Every mother said, amen. We hate our vulnerabilities and we do our best to eliminate them. But David has learned how to let his weaknesses drive him to the one who is without them. Think about this. Some of us are living like our gladness is dependent upon having no weaknesses. You might not ever say it, but deep down in your heart, you're living like your gladness is dependent upon you knowing it all. One day when I get my theology just down, I'll never think about that or doubt that or I'll have an answer to every question. I'll be the perfect missional community leader. I can answer everybody's question. Verse, chapter, verse, point it out, parse it in the Greek. It'll be great then. Some of us are de- Living like our gladness is dependent upon being everywhere. Facebook invitations are from the devil. People, you get sick, you get all these, come to this party. I got a baby shower here and I got this party here and I got a wedding and there's a funeral and there's a, you know, whatever festival downtown and we've got all this and you've got them all right there and you've got to decide and everybody can see what you decide. Sorry, guy, you're not important enough, right? I have to make a choice. It reminds us you can't be everywhere. You got four kids? I got four kids. I'm just say that. I don't know if you do. I have four kids. Soon they're going to have their own little things. How? How am I going to be there, right? I can't be everywhere. I can't be at every game and every recital and when they can't do it. We can't be at every meeting and every counseling session and every appointment. We're not God. We can't be everywhere all at the same time. Some of us are living like our gladness is dependent upon possessing everything that our hearts desire. Some of us are living like our gladness is dependent upon pleasing everyone. And God makes us human. We are not him. We have limitations. He has none. He can be omnipresent. He can be omniscient. He can be all of these things. Omnipotent. We aren't. Do you hate that fact? Are you frustrated that you're not him? I guarantee you I traced your anger or I traced your grief or I traced your shame, I traced those things back. I'm going to get to a spot where you are mad that you're not him. You are angry at your limitations. And the shocking thing is when God decided to enter into our story and come into our world, he didn't come as a superhero. He didn't come. Do you realize, superhero, Superman? Some of you might like him. He's the most boring superhero of all. The only thing that makes him kind of attractional, you know, attractive is kryptonite. That's the only thing. Because other than that, it's like who? He's invincible. I don't really. He's in bullets are bouncing off this guy, right? He's he can spin the world in the opposite direction. Must be nice. Turn back time, right? Jesus could have came like that. But he doesn't. He comes with the limitations that we possess. He comes in weakness and vulnerability. He came as a baby. He couldn't fly or shoot lasers from his eyes. He got tired and hungry. He got tired and hungry. I just think about that. You, you productive people, you know, you, some, long, eating is annoying to me most of the times. Like, why is my stuff? Oh, I haven't ate. Yeah, I need to eat. Life isn't just producing. Sometimes you just need to sit down and enjoy a meal. Jesus, with people to save and people to heal and, you know, all of this work of redemption to accomplish, he had to take time and sleep. He had to take time and eat. He came with our human limitations. The son of God came into our world, poor and needy, like David and like us. And this is, I'm closing. And Jesus, in the midst of his limitations, he demonstrates for us what true gladness looks like. What does he say? I have come to do my will and whatever I want to do, that's exactly what I'm going to do. That's not what Jesus says he says, I've come to do what God called the father has told me to do. That's all I'm going to do is what he's told me to do. I don't have my own agenda. I'm following his agenda. So much so that he needs to leave and every morning get away from the crowds. And when they're all saying, Jesus, Jesus, do this for us. Jesus, Jesus, we need you. He walks away and he says, no, I need to be with my father. I need to pray. I am dependent upon him. His maturity isn't independence from the father. It's dependence upon the father. And he walks away. And he prays. And of course, the most shocking thing of all is how like this prayer that David says, this prayer that David prays, the way that God answers this prayer should shock us. How does God save David? And how does God save us by extension? God answers David's prayer for salvation by denying Jesus's. Jesus prayed in the garden, if it be possible, take this cup of suffering from me. Meaning, if you can save your people in any other way than the cross, do it. But Jesus ends it by saying, but not my will, but yours be done. Then on the cross, when Jesus is stripped naked and he's being beaten and he's been crucified in our place for our sins, Jesus says, Father, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me, he says. Jesus in this moment is feeling the full weight of the wrath of God against sin. And he's been separated from the Father for the first and only time ever. See, David prayed, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought of me. But in this moment, when Jesus was truly poor and needy on the cross and he cries out, he hears nothing. This theologically is called penal substitutionary atonement. The wrath we deserve for our sin, the separation from God that we deserve from our sin was put on Jesus. Jesus lived the perfect life that we should live and then died the death that we deserved in our place so that now by putting our faith and our trust in Jesus and only Jesus not in my own efforts not in my own abilities to be moral and good and pull myself up on my bootstraps but by in the putting my weight in what Jesus has already done for me I am now declared righteous by the father I'm accepted I'm forgiven. I'm loved. I have his ear when I pray because only the work of Jesus. And So our salvation and our gladness is not found by trying. It's not found by reaching down to the far reaches of your own soul and being a better person. Now, this is the gospel, the good news. We are not saved by trying harder, but by trusting Jesus. Our gladness is not found by growing in our own independence, but rather by becoming more and more aware of our dependence upon Jesus every minute of every day for the grace to live this life. I've been reading a biography by of Charles Spurgeon. And Charles Spurgeon was the greatest uh, preacher of the 19th century, really one of the first kind of quote unquote mega church pastors Um, And he greatly struggled with the demands of this huge ministry in London. He also struggled with the painful physical, um, just the pain that was caused by gout. And he had great bouts of depression that came with these difficulties. Spurgeon knew what what it was to feel like he's in a miry bog. To have too many people to write. There's no emails. He was writing up to 30 letters a day. He was preaching at least once every single day. He had multiple thousands of people calling on him. Uh, he had he started, I can't even tell you how many nonprofits and, and extensions of his ministry, orphanages and widow's homes. He was doing all this work and he felt the pressure. I'm not good enough. I can't do this. But he also had this painful gout, which is like arthritis. And he suffered under it and he was depressed a lot because of it. But Spurgeon learned the key to gladness. He learned how to ride the waves of pain and depression into gladness. And he says this, first off, let me just tell you this cycle, this gravity to gladness. If your faith is in Christ and you put your faith in Christ for salvation, whatever happens in your life is going to to terminate into eternal gladness, right? Rather we die in a car wreck or cancer, no matter what happens in our life, if you're in Christ, it's going to terminate into eternal gladness. But this is what he says here little faith will bring your souls to heaven. Jesus says mustard seed faith, tiny faith. Little faith will bring your souls to heaven. But listen to what he says here but great faith will bring heaven to your souls. He's saying, there's a gladness that's deeper than what's going on in your life. There's a gladness that's found in being dependent upon the Father. And no matter how dark it is, you cry out and he's there. And that's the gospel. Jesus never will leave you or forsake you. He will walk with you through no matter what you're going through. He is there and he is enough. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for the gospel. Every other religion on the planet says we must earn our way. We must accomplish. There's something inside of us that's good and we must give light and give birth to this good and we must grow and mature. And if we reach this certain stage of goodness, then we'll be accepted into some kind of afterlife. But the gospel is so different. The gospel says when we look in our own heart, there's really nothing but despair there. There's nothing but darkness there. There's nothing but sin. We look in our own heart and we're like David and we say, we're poor and needy. And you saw us poor and needy and you sent the rich one, your son. He is rich in love. He's rich in righteousness. He's rich in good. He lives the perfect life in a poor and needy body. And ultimately he's crucified in our place as a poor and needy criminal, even though he had done nothing wrong. But Father, I thank you that the story of the cross ends in gladness and that three days later, Christ was resurrected to sit at the right hand of the Father and that he's there right now ruling the universe. Nothing is out of his control. And when we put our faith in him, heaven enters our soul. For those that are struggling this morning, I pray that heaven would enter their soul. I pray they'd hear the voice of the Father. I pray that they'd be awed at their own salvation. They'd be thankful for the work that you've done. They'd say, great is the Lord for saving someone like me. And Father, we would turn from independence. We would turn from our own self-will of making something great of ourselves, And we put our confidence in Christ. And as we come to the Lord's table, this is what we're reminded of. We're poor and needy. We're beggars. And we open our empty hands and we say, feed me, Father. And you, as a good and gracious Father, put the only thing that can satisfy our souls into our hands, and that's the body of Christ and the blood of Jesus. Let us eat and worship this morning as we exalt the God who hears our prayers and never leaves us alone in our miry pits. We praise you forever. In Jesus' name, amen.